Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Football is king in America, but soccer is gaining in popularity. In Great Britain, soccer known as football has always been the pride and passion of regular people. So when a small-time corporate raider with no connection to soccer somehow acquired Manchester United, a professional football club in Old Trafford, Greater Manchester, only to raise prices and make billions, it affected the sport in unexpected ways. My guest today explains it all in a fascinating book. Chris Blackhurst is author of The World's Biggest Cash Machine, Manchester United, the Glazers, and the Struggle for Football's Soul, published by Macmillan. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Chris, go to chrisblackhurst.media, and you can follow him on X and LinkedIn. And Chris, welcome to the show. Absolutely thrilled. Delighted to be on. Thank you. I am uh, what's considered the world's non-expert on either football in the States or soccer (laughs) or football, as you call it, over there across the pond. So can you give us an overall sense of why football, that is to say soccer, if you're watching or listening in America, uh, why it is so uh, important in Great Britain? And then we can get into why you decided to write the book, which fascinating read. I think... um... And I must admit, I'd not really even appreciated myself just how important it was till I came to write the book. Um, For many people, not just in Great Britain, but um, in Europe, across the world, soccer, um, it's their lives. Um, They've got their their jobs, they've got their families, they've got their friends, but they've also got their club and their team, and they support their team. And they are absolutely passionate about their team. And it doesn't matter if it's a giant club like Manchester United, who who are the biggest in the world, or even a tiny club. I mean, I grew up in a small town in the north of England, um, but the team, the club, and how it did. I mean, if it won, you felt the mood lift in the town. Um, Sadly, it lost more than it won. (laughs) But, but, you know, people are passionate and crazy about their, their team. Yeah, it seems to be very much a part of the culture, just as football, meaning actual in the United States, football is, a, is part of the culture here. Soccer, as I mentioned in my opening, is gaining more and more popularity here. And it does get a little confusing when you refer to when those outside of the United States refer to soccer as football. But putting that aside, what inspired you to write this book again it's called the world's biggest cash machine manchester united the glazers and the struggle for football soul who are the glazers and why is it important Um, took over this team well you put your finger on it what inspired me was who were the glazers um (laughs) glazers are a uh yeah he was a a small time corporate raider from uh rochester county in new york um he this is malcolm glazer and he ended up buying um, uh, the equivalent in soccer in the UK for Americans, the equivalent of buying the New York Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, they are that big. And this is a team that's steeped in history. Um, They were nearly wiped out in an air crash in 1958 in Munich. 
Um, some of their players died. The, the the greatest player of the of the era died, called Duncan Edwards. Um, but they went on. They rebuilt the team. They won the European Cup, and they had great players like um, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, George Best. These names might not mean anything to Americans, but these are these are gods. And um, and then with their manager Alex Ferguson with David Beckham, who you will have heard of, um, they won everything they could as possible to win. So there they are, the biggest, most successful brand in football, in soccer. And this guy from um, upstate New York comes along and buys it. And um, uh, incredible, really. And he saw off other really very powerful business people like Rupert Murdoch, he wanted the club. Um, other guys wanted the club much bigger and better known and richer than Malcolm Glazer. It's an incredible story. Was it part of it, the force of his personality that helped seal the deal? Because as you um, mentioned, there are higher or more important or more powerful or richer. People that wanted it's to. funny. I, I would almost say it was... Um, it's interesting you put it like that because... This is a man with almost zero personality, but in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that, he doesn't do publicity, he doesn't do profile, um, he is utterly ruthless as a business. He's dead now. Was utterly ruthless as a businessman, but he played a long game, and he played a long game, and he he saw down the others. Um, he just sat there and slowly built his stake and. Um, his shares got bigger and bigger, and it came to the point where he was own. You know, he actually had ownership of the club. So it wasn't force of personality. It was almost this, this um, stoicism, this determination to succeed, and that's how he was. He owns the Tampa Bay Bucks in the NFL, um, but the Tampa Bay Bucks fans didn't like him either. He never turned up at the matches. Um, he might have turned up at Tampa, but he never turned up at Manchester United. It's interesting because when you think of corporate ownership of a team, for example, uh, there is that impersonal ownership. But here you have a gentleman who could have been a very personal owner and a connection to the team, and yet, does, as you say, didn't and doesn't show up for the game. Yeah, I mean, the contrast right now is um, I'm trying to remember their names. Uh, you've got two Hollywood stars who bought a small club in Wales called Wrexham, and they turn up, they fly all the way from America, turn up at the matches, they stay in a boarding house, the fans love them, they go to the pub, they drink with the fans, they're adored, they're worshipped, these guys. Um, the Glazers, Malcolm and his sons, from day one, Malcolm Glazer only ever said 33 words about buying the club. Now, you know, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who, you know, you have your whole house decked out in Manchester United kit. You sleep under a Manchester United duvet. You've got Manchester United wallpaper, pictures of the players all around the house. That's what people are like. Um, here's a guy who buys your club but only says 33 words. Well, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it really annoys you. So he doesn't. He's not a man of a, a lot of words. He's a man of few words. Were you able to score any interviews with either the family or close associates? 
Um, I spoke to one or two associates, but the family themselves, they were going to give me an interview. Um, and then they did what they, I'm afraid, what they always do, which is, you know, I, jo I join a, a long list of writers, journalists, broadcasters who've been promised interviews with Joel Glazer, who's now the head of the family, um, only to be called off at the last minute. And that's what happened. Have you gotten any reaction from the family since the book has come out? Uh, no, I, I just radio silence. But to be honest, that's all I was ever expecting. They, they don't. Um, these are people who, they, I don't know what it is. Why they hate publicity so much? I mean, yeah, publicity isn't that bad. I mean, you know, and you can you can manufacture it yourself. I mean, yeah, it's called public relations. Yeah, exactly. You can employ PR people to make it make you look good. I mean. Yeah, I could look like George Clooney with a bit of PR. Well, wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. I thought you were George Clooney. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I guess I'm uh, Chris Blackhurst instead. But, okay, but, <laughs> but you know, I know it's always a dis on blind dates. It never works. <laughs> and um, but you know, um, they um, they never bothered. They really didn't bother. And in fact, if you if you took it as a test case, as a a business case for business school on why PR matters, this is an example. I mean, it's unbelievable the way they behave. Well, looking at it in a larger context, the whole idea of, from your perspective, foreign ownership of a team, and especially from somebody that lives in America, and the, the cultural pride that goes with team fandom, has that been a, a sore subject in Great Britain in the sense that it is, everything should stay English versus... Uh, no, not person. really. I mean, look, our biggest clubs, uh, lots of the premiership, the top clubs now are owned by Americans. John Henry owns Liverpool, who are just about the second, you know, one of the very biggest team. Um, Sheikh Mansour owns Manchester City. No, we, we don't mind. Look, we're, we're a very open society, as is America. Um yeah, we, we are an open society, and if people want to come here and live here and you know play with us, that's absolutely fine. What we don't like is when somebody buys something that we treasure, and then they don't seem to treasure it themselves. That's that's a different thing. They never turned up at the matches, um, and when you talk to the fans, and I talk to lots of fans, it wasn't the foreign ownership. Um, they used to foreigners. Um, they like foreigners. It, you know, to be honest, if a foreigner threw themselves into the club more than a Brit, they'd be more popular than the Brit. Um, it, it's the love for the club that matters. And yet finance is always an issue in any team purchase or ownership or operation. And you talk about in your book in terms of record levels of debt that followed. How did that come about? And I'm sure that wasn't popular with people. No, it wasn't. Um, I mean, that just added to it, really. The fact that they borrowed other people's money. Um, they went to New York hedge funds and they borrowed at very high rates of interest to buy the club. And that did annoy the fans. I mean, the truth is, if you or I, I, mean, I don't suppose you'd be that way inclined, but um, if I'd wanted to buy the club, I could have done that. I might, might find it hard to sit down with the hedge funds. Um, <laughs> might say, who the hell are you? But um, you know, other people could have done it. The fact is, again, though, Malcolm Glazer did it. 
um, they did run up huge debts and huge borrowings, and that did annoy people. But you know, the the, the Russian Roman Abramovich, the oligarch, he bought another big club called Chelsea in London. Um, he had debts; they had debts. But Roman Abramovich went to every game, and he went to the training ground. He went in the changing room with the players, and and the fans adored him. They never ever protested against Roman Abramovich. That's an interesting insight. You think that that there might be opposition to foreign ownership, and yet if you participate in the game, in the sport, in the team more particularly, you you are accepted by the fans and you're in some cases adored by the fans. It doesn't matter where you're from. Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, they might even appreciate you more. They realize that you are making a big leap you know, you're outside your comfort zone. It's not your culture. But look, we live in a connected world, and the the idea that you, you know you can, um, you know, you can't have foreigners buying British football clubs. I mean, what the fans ultimately want, of course, um, they want love for the club, but they also want the team, the 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 club, to be buying the the very best players. And we don't have a draft system like you do. In, in the NFL or the, the other franchises, the other leagues. Um, you, you know, you, we have a transfer market and, you know, the the teams that spend the most and buy the biggest players, the best players, tend to do better than the others. And that's what the fans want. So in terms of finance and in going into debt, is it more because of the expense of acquiring players than it is any other factor in terms of an operation? Um, it's certainly the biggest outlay. Um, I mean, the two big outlays are the stadium. Um, Old Trafford, where United play, is the biggest football ground in England, a capacity of 74,000, uh, nearly, nearly as big as Wembley, where the England team play is bigger. Um, but um, the fans would like it even bigger. Um, so it's the the stadium and and the players and yes i mean you know we are looking now at 150 million pounds for mm. a player um and these are huge huge sums of money and their salaries are off the scale so you yeah they need to find ways to finance that i'm surprised though that um you mentioned glazer as a astute business person in a way I, i'm not i don't want to put words in your mouth but he was canny let's put it that way and yet at the same time, he's he's going, as you mentioned, to hedge funds and borrowing money and going into debt to get the team at a high rate of interest. So is that very practical or very astute? Um, well, he made it work because what he was able to do was that he built up the commercial side of the club, um, a, football, uh, uh, a sports club, well, a franchise in the States or a football club in in England. It has two sides to its, its operation. One is the the playing side, what happens on the pitch. Um, and the other is is the commercial side. And he focused entirely, uh, as did his sons, really on the commercial side. And United struck the biggest ever kit deals in history with um, Adidas. Um, they were they were doing enormous deals. They had a cast, they had a sponsorship deal with Chevrolet. Um uh, they had deals galore. I mean, so many commercial partners, it wasn't true. Um, 
So they were making so much money on that side, he was able to service the debt quite easily. The fact that he was not personally involved, nor I guess members of his family involved with the team, I just think, going back to public relations and perception and publicity, it just seems to me that having a disconnect where you're just focusing on the commercial side and you're buying it as a business, but you don't want to have any hands-on connection with players or fans, it just seems it would work against you. Yeah, well, it did work against them. I mean, the the, the fans say they never showed the love. And um, this is the other intriguing thing. I mean, I spoke to people who know the Glazers very well, and Joel Glazer, who um, lives in Maryland, um, his house, his office, his office is a, a shrine to Manchester United. Um when the team is playing, um, all phone calls are dead. You know, the phones are switched off. He is glued to the TV. Um, he dances around the room if they score. And yet he can't go to the ground. I mean, it's really bizarre. It's almost an intellectual exercise in ownership of a team as opposed to bonding with uh, not just the fans, but the management, the players, the staff. It's odd, I guess, but that's just well. The way well, it is. I think I think that's a very interesting phrase you use there about uh, intellectual exercise. I mean, the, the the point about that is well, though, of course, it does make it easier to take tough decisions. Um, you know, if you're not wedded down, if you're not, you know, in the pub in the bar with the fans, it makes it easier to get rid of that popular player who somebody's made a big bid for. The fans won't thank you for it. Um, it makes it easier to um, fire the manager because you, there's something happening. You know, in a way, it makes running it. It can make it easier in some sort of strange, you know, at a distance way. It just seems odd, though, that a, it's one thing if you buy a company that manufactures widgets, but you're buying a team which is which is com it's comprised of humans. And fans are human. And so it's an emotional connection, you would think, as opposed to just a factory that manufactures something. So you'd think that the ownership, any ownership, would connect in some minimal ways to make it complete. But that's just um, me looking at it. No, I think that's absolutely right. But the, the history of Malcolm Glazer was that he was a corporate raider who specialized in buying not very good companies. Oddly, they were quite well-known brands. I mean, he... He um he tried to buy Harley Davidson. He tried to buy Tonka Toys. He tried to buy Formica Kitchens. Um, but they were all often on the downslope, and um, he never showed the love. I mean, he he never built them up. He never invested. He took money out rather than put money in. And um, I think that that he saw football in the same terms. Um, I mean, it's the same with the Tampa Bay Bucks. His daughter. Darcy, she go. I mean, you know, she does show the love, and in fact, the brothers do go. But the Tampa Bay Bucks fans, from time to time, moan like mad about the Glazers. Um, I mean, how they try to get the local local city to council to um, pay for the ground. Um, I mean, all sorts of things went on, and strange commercial sponsorship deals. Um, I mean, they got. I think it was Hulahans who are, are not a Tampa Bay restaurant chain they got them to sponsor because they owned hooligans so they got them to sponsor tampa bay well that's a bit weird 
I mean, you know, they've got nothing to do with Tampa. Um, <laughs> well, things like that, that, you know, you know wow, you know. <laughs> when you started your research, did you know who you wanted to talk to? And did you get to talk to all the people you wanted to talk to with um, you? The Glazers, of course. Yeah, uh, I did know who I wanted to talk to. I can't, I must confess, there were some people I could not get to who it was surprising because, uh, although I then discovered that they, former former people around the club um, who are still, technically they're retired, but they're on the payroll of the club and they turn up at matches and they wave at the fans and the fans wave back. They get paid an awful lot of money for doing that and they would not talk to me. Um, I mean, you know, why should they? They're, they're not going to jeopardise their nest eggs and things. Um, generally, I did get to speak to most of the people I wanted to. The research that you did, and it took a while, obviously, to put it all together, what was the most surprising thing that you found out that you didn't realize? You may have had assumptions and you had questions you wanted to ask, but was there one thing that jumped out at you that you were surprised to find out um, the world's biggest? Well, it's athlete? an amazing story, and I I, I I hesitate because it's quite long in the telling, but Manchester United had a very famous manager called Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson won everything going. He was the top coach in the world. He then got into horse racing, and he became a part owner in a horse called Rock of Gibraltar. And Rock of Gibraltar was the world's number one racehorse, um, won everything. The co-owners were these Irish billionaires called J.P. Uh, John Magnia and J. John Magnia and J.P. McManus, really John Magnia. And um, they were friends at first, and then they fell out big time. Um, because Ferguson wanted, he wanted access to the breeding rights, and the breeding rights to this horse. We are talking tens and tens of millions of pounds. I mean, sixty, seventy million pounds. Um, and he'd not paid for the horse. It was a, a share. It was a gift from from them. And um, this is actually what led to the Glazers coming in because they were the shareholders in the club. Uh, big shareholders, and they all fell out. And Malcolm Glazer was able to steal up on the inside, on the rails, um, and buy the club. I mean, it takes some telling that story. Oh, and I understood. This is big Sir, part of the book. This is an amazing story. This is Sir Alex Ferguson. Yes, Sir Alex yes, to you. Yes, yes exactly. Me <laughs> as well. Me as well. Yes, of course. When you first decided to write the book, was there any? Encouragement, discouragement, uh, enthusiasm, lack of enthusiasm from the various people that you knew you needed to talk to about writing this book. Um, yeah, people said I'd find it difficult. Um, it was difficult at times. Um, um, they um, and I'm not a Manchester United fan. I mean, um, I'm deliberately not. Um, um, I support a team in London called Fulham who are, um, you know, mid-table team. Um, I'm not a Manchester United supporter. I don't have any affinity towards them, but I grew up with them. I grew up in the northwest of England, 
And if you grew up in the northwest of England, then Manchester is the biggest city. It's the city, the go-to city. And um, there was so much romance around this club um, that it was part of our DNA. We all knew the stories about Reunited. Um, but, yeah, you're, you're dissuaded. i tell you one thing. Um, most of my career has been spent as a, I was a newspaper editor in London. Um, I write, write about business and politics. Um, I don't think I'd appreciated just how tribal sports writing is. <laughs> um, I mean, it really, really is. Um, I mean, you know, they are very jealous of their of their patches. So I'm treading on turf here. I'm, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm a hallowed ground. Um, I mean, they really are. And um, in a way that, frankly, in other areas of the media, people aren't. But I would think you'd have a built-in audience for the book from just fans of Manchester United to for them oh, to get sure. the they, they love the book. And I've become a bit of a, weirdly, I've become this sort of strange... Folk hero? Folk heroes <laughs> there, but I'm not, I don't even support the team. Um, you know, but they, they they keep sending me messages on X or LinkedIn. <laughs> or whatever it is. You know, Chris, what do you think of so-and-so? I think, I don't give a can I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, I could see why the fans would, would look up to you because it, it may explain some things to them that they were not fully aware of. Yeah, I mean, some of them have thanked me. Quite a lot of them have actually thanked me uh, in all seriousness, uh, uh, grateful, and it's quite humbling, really. But they have sent me messages saying, thank you for the insight. At last I understand. And um, because, you know, come back to where we started, these are people who eat, breathe, sleep, sleep, drink their team. And, you know, it's hard to put it into words, the passion they they feel it and and there they are struggling with these aliens as they see them move <laughs> exactly come in. and they are aliens i mean they behave in an alien way they 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 do not share the love the i could just see do you think they'd sell your book at the uh at, at, when the games are played and put it in the bookstore there if they can create a well book. i wanted to it's interesting you should ask that i did say to the publisher pan mcmillan i said look you know can i set up a stall outside the ground and <laughs> i don't know I think they made an inquiry and they were told it might cause an incident i'm not sure <laughs> who's, probably the club i don't think it would cause it cause an incident from the fans it might be from man no, in my opening i said mcmillan but it's pan mcmillan based on yeah the, yes yeah. which is fine uh well what before i let you go what um what do you see? Because you do have this extensive background as an editor and writer. And as you you are, in a sense, nonpartisan with your approach to this, because you, you are not a fan necessarily of the team. So you're writing about it in a dispassionate way, similar to what Malcolm does when he buys a team, <laughs> buys it in a dispassionate way, I guess, uh, hands off in that sense. But uh, do, where do you see the team going at this point? Um, well, they've now done a deal with, Britain's richest guy, a guy called Jim Ratcliffe, he's bought 25% of the club. Um, he apparently is going to look after the playing side. He's got no track record at all um, in sports. He's a, he's a, he manufactures chemicals, um, but money is available. Um, 
they've got a good manager, although the manager struggles to win the win the changing room. I mean, the they've got some very big names and very big egos there. Um, they're only lying eighth in the league, um, and it rankles. This hurts this stuff because the two top teams are Manchester City, who are just down the road, and then worst of all, even worse than City is is um uh the number two well number one team at the moment is Liverpool. Um and Liverpool and Manchester United have the greatest rivalry in sport. Um you know when their teams meet there are riots, fights, police escorts, you name it. I mean unbelievable scenes. Mm. And um they're the two big cities in the northwest and um side by side, only a small motorway between them. And, um, you know, so it hurts the fans that these clubs are doing very well. There's no no reason at all why, even with a new ownership structure, United should join them. I mean, football is a very unpredictable game. It's all about instinct, speed, skill, um, there are a lot, you know, as I say, at the moment, they're eighth in the league. And that that's not where United fans want their team to be. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Chris Blackhurst. He's author of the world's biggest cash machine, Manchester United, the Glazers, and the Struggle for Football's Soul. It's published by Pan McMillan. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Chris, go to chrisblackhurst.media. And you can follow him on X and LinkedIn. And Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.